Hello, Gregor. Hello, Edgar. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Doing pretty well, thank you. So that our audience have a clear sense of what we're talking about, can you pinpoint our major themes today? So the major themes would be the balance between leaving all doors open and taking a stand. Some things seem to attract complexity, while others don't. When to change our beliefs or not, and the weight of public beliefs. I just want to add that, as the audience uh, have noticed, we have changed the dynamics in how we engage in conversation with each other. So let us know how it is working for you. That said, this is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Francisco Danielson. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. I think you have a few comments before we go on to the podcast, right? Yes, we wanted to say a few things to our audience. First, we wanted to thank you for keep on listening to our podcast. And also, as people who have been listening to the podcast for some time might have realized that I'm the one editing the podcast, that what we offer to our audience is not the raw version of our recording sessions. And the editing aims in part at making our discourse clearer. Because when we are talking naturally during our recording sessions, sometimes it's not that clear. Some things are harder to correct than others, and sometimes I might inadvertently produce some grammatical mistakes that I cannot fix through editing. If by any chance you find that what I'm saying isn't clear, please do write to us. I won't take it badly. I am completely aware of that. So please go ahead. Mm -hmm. The second thing is we've been looking at our audience data mm -hmm. and we've noticed that the last minutes of the podcast are usually not listened to. And I think for a good reason in the sense that for a while it was just us saying thank you, goodbye, give us five stars, like, don't give us stars, etc. But... Actually, what happened is that for a few months already, we are using the end of the podcast as a substitute to the follow-ups that we are not doing anymore. Meaning that after we record, I edit the podcast and then we find that some things are really incomplete or at least sufficiently incomplete that they require an additional comment. Mm -hmm. 
The thing is, for this podcast, they won't be. We can tell you already. This could be a very <laughs> simple ending. But in general, we really encourage you to wait because we might say things like, uh, well, we said that at that moment. We want to emphasize this and that, etc. And who knows? Maybe there will be a reward for those who listen to the, till the end. They will be rewarded when they go to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying that. <laughs> I know. I, that's, it baffles me. But uh, yeah. <laughs> it's my religious side. <laughs> anyway, and the last thing we wanted to say on a more serious tone is that when Edgar and I record uh, and work on discussions on psychoanalysis, really we want it to, we want people to take it on a light way. In the world we live in now, and the world we are going to keep on living, we will have to face tremendous threats to how humanity has been going on so far and to democracy probably specifically in the US at least. So we don't want psychoanalysis and uh, discussions in psychoanalysis, not just the podcast but real discussions on psychoanalysis, to become a distraction. As important as we think psychoanalysis There are other things that are worth fighting for, things where we should really put our energy into, our anger into. I want to remind people that we can fight, but let's keep a clear head that all the discussion we have, as long as it's done in a respectful way, they are not worth the extra amount of energy that we might see sometime in the mm -hmm. social sphere. Yeah, I guess in part what you're saying is that we tend to intellectualize by talking about psychoanalysis and maybe that it's a distraction. And this place where we think we might actually have a weight while we feel important in other spaces. Correct. Mm -hmm. And that said, today we are going to keep on talking about neutrality and different aspects of it. So today the main theme we said would be neutrality and the analyst belief. There's one thing we didn't really address. How to balance between leaving all doors open and taking a stand to help a patient feel supported. Because there is a need to question what patients say, mm -hmm. but there is also a need to help patients feel supported to mm -hmm. reach what you remind us of, the therapeutic alliance. What's your take on that balance? I go back to the therapeutic alliance. I think that has a higher priority at the beginning of the treatment. Some patients may experience my curiosity or inquiry as either interrogation or judgment. That's why, you know, we've been told not to use the question why. Oh, really? Who told you that? Oh, one of my instructors, that the why sometimes comes across, even if it's not one's intention, as a judgment. You have done something wrong. Now, I have to say that when the instructor said that to me while I was presenting, he said at the same time, when I hear you, I don't hear that you're coming from that place. But I want to say that sometimes the why might be too harsh on the patient. Okay. And then, on the other hand, asking questions, the patient might feel like we are interrogating, when in fact we are trying to flesh out something or we're curious about something. I guess it takes a while before we get to the point where we know the sensitivity of our patient. 
and the use of a certain vocabulary may stir up anxieties. My point being that I lean towards keeping the development of the therapeutic alliance in the foreground at the beginning of a treatment. And then once I get a better sense of this the psychic structure of the patient, when I get a sense of the defenses the patient is using, then I may move into a deeper inquiry. Other analysts would immediately go into inquiry and exploration, but I don't think the patients we have today in our offices are the patients our instructors had 40 years ago. Are you saying that the people who instructed you at NPP don't have patients today anymore? Uh, but uh, <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm just trying to bring up the assumption... <laughs> that they are still practicing. <laughs> that they might not um, seem to adapt... I, uh, is this what you're saying? Or maybe, maybe uh, I mean, it's actually uh, a, a question. How adaptable are we as analysts? I think, or at least what I hear from many of them, is that they, of course, they adapt. Let's say 40 years ago, psychoanalysis was in a different place. So people outside the psychoanalytic field, people had a sense of what psychoanalysis was. Nowadays, the patients we receive in our offices don't make a distinction between psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, CBT, psychodynamic, you name it. There is no distinction. So the usual approach we have in analysis that goes so deep, what we call depth psychology, perhaps is too much for some of our patients. So in the answer you gave me, I would say I agree. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking this answer applies to um, moments or to themes that we would agree with the patient are true. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. Since last time we recorded, yeah. one dynamic came back to me that I think sums up a lot. There's a question of magic. Mm -hmm. For instance, let's say, because it happens to me with some of my patients, I use the term, but magic can appear in different shape and form. How do we relate to that? I personally do not believe magic exists. Oh, you're talking about magic as that the patient believes in magical... In magic. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Okay. But I think magic like horoscopes. Okay. I'm that sign, so it means that if Earth is located this mm -hmm. way between Mars and mm -hmm. blah, 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 then, uh, mm -hmm. then it means something. And again, I want to emphasize that it's a difficulty to talk about those issues, is that there might be a confusion between criticizing a belief in one person and the fact that there might be contempt, which I think those two things are different, mm -hmm. at least in my mind. So that said, I have patients who believe in magic in that sense. I do not believe in magic. Mm -hmm. I believe magic is a fantasy. It's a creation of our psyche. Mm -hmm. It's a way to explain some events, some feelings. It's a way to make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. That's me. But my patients believe magic is real. Yes. And so I agree that when we touch about subject that we both agree with, we can just let them come in and not question them. But when you have patients who bring in questions like magic, mm -hmm. and they bring it as something that is true, mm -hmm. I'm unclear on how to address that. 
Now, what I usually do is I let them talk and I eventually, treatment going forward, question. That's interesting how useful this magic can be. And it can work with some people. Mm -hmm. But I find myself with some of my patients who are holding to the belief that they were contacted by the universe in one way or another. Mm -hmm. That is where I feel like they, to me at least, there's a struggle between how to handle being open, being supportive, and how to address that. I really don't think that's how it works. And I wonder, is it useful? Because sometimes I feel like my patient might put themselves in a difficult position because mm -hmm. of those beliefs. And when I address them, by addressing them, I feel like what shows up is that I, by questioning them, they become not real. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be unbearable to some of my patients. I think you're talking about abstinence. In this case, the not imposing on the patient our belief system, value system, understanding of uh, family structures or relationships, so on and so forth. So I think what you are referring to is abstinence. And then if I don't want to impose my belief system, then what happens in the room is that I'm trying to understand what is the function of my patient's belief system. What sustains the belief system? Because that would be a series of unconscious wishes and fantasies. Now, the thing is that the longer we're working with a patient, the patient will gather enough information, conscious and not, of our own belief systems. Yeah. And it has happened that a patient tells me after Sometimes, you know, I know you don't believe this, but... Uh, and they I happen have, to me too. <laughs> <laughs> I know you don't believe in this, but I... And then whatever the patient needs to say. So, of course, one could go into different pathways there. One is to explore what is happening in the transference, meaning uh, you don't believe this. Well, actually, sometimes mm -hmm. it happened to me that they said, I know you don't believe it, while well, actually I do. <laughs> so I leave it to them believing that I don't well, believe it. Well, Those moments, exactly. I'm like, this is very curious. <laughs> but that's a, an assumption. I agree with abstinence. But what I found is that you can keep abstinence for so long. Because when you try to understand the function of a belief, the belief enters the realm of fantasies. Correct, yes. And I think this is where abstinence ends. Because were we to be really abstinent, we wouldn't question anything. And so we do question based on certain beliefs on our side. I agree with you. What I'm saying is that in the long term, in the long run of the treatment, the patient gets to know who we are in the sense of why are we interested in asking these questions and not other questions. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So the idea of abstinence is a, in itself a, uh, you know, a fantasy that we hold on to. The patient gets to, by intuition, by unconscious communication, or sometimes by very conscious communication, yeah. gets to know who, who, what, you know, have an intuition about what we believe. Yeah. So how do you see that? Your answer would be, it's time. You wait for um, therapeutic alliance to be in place, and then through time, you question it, and it will be fine. Yes, but then again, some people, uh, some uh, of my uh, instructors and supervisors say that I'm too gentle. They would say uh, that? <laughs> oh, surprise, surprise. I, I can't breathe. <laughs> I'm so surprised. <laughs> I'm going to die of surprise. <laughs> so... 
Maybe that's my, oh, my really? own issue. <laughs> <laughs> so my point being that other analysts may immediately attack the defenses. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> We would not advise that in discussions on psychosis no. <laughs> either. No, it, it's a balance, but I, I really want to open up how I find that the balance is. I think that in theory, what you're saying is correct. Actually, more than in theory, in most cases, this is the way I go too. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to share and maybe um, help. Uh, the discussion going, uh, how I find it difficult in some instances. So I, I use magic, but there are other themes. Mm -hmm. As I said, racism, the question of uh, gender identity, the question of climate change. Mm -hmm. Some themes seem to attract this kind of complexity and this kind of tension. Yes, probably those subjects that are hot topics in, in the social arena or the politics in the country. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a connection? Why do you think it comes into the office too? Well, the simple answer without too much complexity is that we are immersed in the social fabric of our communities. So it would be disingenuous to think that our patients come to therapy and they extricate themselves from their social fabric. So whatever polarizations we see in, in politics, in the social arena, they will show up as well in the office. As I said, it's disingenuous to think that what happens in the room is only happening in the mind of the patient or in the intersubjective field between the patient and the analyst. Could we notice that some things might be more difficult for analysts than others? Because I'm thinking about... For instance, the theme of religion mm -hmm. or the theme of social class. Mm -hmm. They seem to not pose any problem today for psychoanalysts. It seems actually it's almost we don't discuss them. And it doesn't seem to trigger any anxiety. But the question of racism and gender identity seems to trigger a lot of anxiety in the psychoanalytic field. Mm -hmm. Maybe less in our patients than in us as professional. Mm -hmm. I don't really understand why, if my observation is correct. It could be a lack of information. It could be as simple as that. I have experienced in presenting a case of a trans individual that analysts of experience have asked me, what is cis? What is trans? So they could not pass that until they are able to understand what does those terms mean they cannot go past that point. So that, from my perspective, that is lack of knowledge. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that if we are going to talk about gender and sexuality, we need to have a different theoretical underpinning. We cannot see every single presentation of gender and sexuality as being understood from the Oedipal constellation. And there is a tendency to only look at gender and sexuality from an Oedipal configuration. What do you mean by an Oedipal configuration? In other ways, it, it's something happened that the Oedipal conflict was not resolved. That is where something went wrong with gender or sexual orientation. 
that is not, in fact, what we believe nowadays, which somehow people want to go back to the Oedipal configuration. To Oedipal as the moment everything happens? As the moment where things then get resolved, as if gender and sexuality are the object choice happens right there or the gender established there, masculinity, femininity, and it's much more complex than just the Oedipal. If at all, the Oedipal is helpful. And I think it is helpful in some cases, but it's not the only organizing principle. Yeah. So whenever we have a different organizing principle, that creates anxiety in the analyst because we lose some grounding. We want to ground ourselves in what we know. Uh, we know that the edible conflict is resolved this way, and that is the organizing principle by excellence, but it's not the only one. Well, I was wondering if also then there are some themes in which we might f feel afraid to be shamed. In the room? By the patient? By the patient and by community at large. Mm -hmm. As I'm listening to you, I hear what you're saying and I, um, I didn't think about it and it's probably a component. Yeah, I would agree. Also, I'm wondering how this, this fear to be shamed and to be that to question you might easily be experienced as a bad object, but as a bad object with no hope of changing that. Correct. Yes, I agree. With social coming for patients as a defense. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to put it more clearly, I do ask patients why. So now I'm, I feel like I'm, uh, ah. <laughs> I'm well, my super I... ego, <laughs> as we said last time. <laughs> It's like, man, are you doing what you should do? <laughs> Uh, but I do ask my patients why. I, that's not the only way I, uh, mm -hmm. I try to um, make them think about something. But it's easy for me to feel like I can ask someone like why they look down on people for different classes mm -hmm. or why they are angry at people in higher classes. The second one is easier to understand for me, but still I think we should think about it because when we fall into generalization, I think we lose the object, but we also lose ourselves. But mm -hmm. that's another point. As I said, I don't have patients who present or experience themselves as transgender, mm -hmm. but some do know people with transgender and they talk about their experience with them. And when I question it, like how it feels for them, what I hear as ambivalence, what I hear as feeling that they should align without knowing exactly why, at least with mm -hmm. the people I work with. Mm -hmm. When I do that, the tension rises very fast. In the room or within in you? In the room. Okay. Knowing that I don't work with people who, who present themselves as transgender, I'm wondering, like, how would that play out? Maybe actually it would be easier uh, to have someone who actually is in this uh, dynamic to uh, question. There are other things at play when you are outside of it. And I feel like with my patients, uh, what appears is this social environment that comes in mm -hmm. the office right away and says, no, it's good. Mm -hmm. And that's all it is. Yeah. You don't question. You don't question. Because mm -hmm. if you do, mm -hmm. you are like McConnell. Mm -hmm. You are Trump. You're the bad object. Yeah. And you will stay like that. Yeah. That in itself goes against the grain of psychoanalysis and understanding of the driving forces. What leads us to say it's good and that cannot be questioned. What is the driving force there? 
what is the function of grounding oneself in this is the truth, this is what is acceptable, and it should not be questioned. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Oh, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Sorry. I thought it was the middle of the sentence. No, it, the... <laughs> When we come to gender, sexuality, and politics, the political parties in the United States in particular, it's almost like we're walking on a minefield. It's like we have to be careful or something will explode. And I hear some of my patients say, oh, well, this is my opinion. But that opinion sounds more like a defensive maneuver saying, you know, I, 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 I'm not discriminating against anyone, but I have this opinion of myself. But there's some fear in expressing one's truth in the room. Even in a psychoanalytic room. Even in the psychoanalytic room, yes. As if the social was actually like in those uh, reality TV show where the camera is in the room <laughs> on the ceiling. Mm -hmm. The social is looking at us from yeah. above and uh, yeah. judging us, paying attention, attention. Like if you yes. say something that you're not even sure of, you make a mistake, then you, the sanction is mm -hmm. there right away. I had a supervisor who used to say that everything is greased for the meal everything that is said or not said. Is it But, the same supervisor with the pudding? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very food-related <Yes>. supervisor. <laughs> and and I, that might be true, and my experience is not that. Is that there are some subjects that either because of a resistance of the patient or my counter-resistance, we don't go there. We don't touch that uh, subject. I try to be very conscious, very aware of my own anxieties and how it, they spike inside me when some subjects are brought up. And I try, and I think I'm getting better at doing my job, which is to explore and to gain deeper understanding. Yeah, we're going back to this idea that those resistances that we feel from outside or from within are certainly at the disservice of the patient. Mm -hmm. And I would add, as we are discussing it, it's probably at the disservice of the analyst too. I'm thinking how we do come with a certain understanding of psychoanalysis. Not every clinician sees psychoanalysis the same way. Mm -hmm. And I would say that patients who are pretty classic, if I can use this term, just to give a general idea, certainly might let us feel very comfortable with our beliefs. It's easy going. But when we come to moments of tension, then our beliefs are challenged. Does it mean that we were wrong? Does it mean that we are necessarily right before? It's probably case by case. I was going to ask you if you have an example. I'm going to go back to something I alluded to uh, last uh, podcast. For the question of racism, I don't see myself as racist. But I know some of my patients can see me as racist. Mm -hmm. I know that in the US, and now it's happening more in France, there is this idea that racism is connected to oppression, mm -hmm. if I understand correctly. And one of the consequences of this logic is that there is a divide between white people and the others. White people being the one who have power and therefore being the one who can be racist. Mm. I think that's it sums up the idea of the academic reasoning. I do not believe that. Mm -hmm. I believe that there's oppression. I believe this understanding collude racism and oppression. I think they can be connected, but I perceive racism as 
actually something very human, sadly. For people who listen to the podcast that we recorded on the theme like years ago now, I think I addressed that already then. I think racism is an expression of xenophobia. Xenophobia being a very human thing to do, that we are afraid of what we perceive as mm -hmm. foreign. Mm -hmm. My belief is that it's most likely something that made humanity possible because they wouldn't try to eat things that were unusual and maybe poisonous, etc. But that also comes with a lot of problem mm -hmm. because as society grows, what can be foreign is immense. Like the possibility of seeing something foreign is so limitless. And I believe that racism is a way we organize ourselves and others along the criteria of race. It appears that mostly today, criteria of race is organized around skin tone. Mm -hmm. It hasn't always been the case. Mm -hmm. Jewish people, supposed to be a different race, they are the same skin as every Euro European people before colonization. Now, since colonization, European people have very different skin tone. But still, when you organize people with the concept of race, to me, this is racism. And I think in terms of psychoanalytic dynamic, in terms of social dynamic, I can understand more the collision between oppression and racism. And, but as psychoanalysts, I think we're missing something if we only follow this idea. But doing that, I find myself with some patients. And when I question their belief that they cannot be racist because they are not, in quote, white, mm -hmm. then the answer I often have is that I'm racist because I look white. Mm -hmm. If we are on a racist organization, I'm white. What it means in terms of who I am, that's another question. And so the example of me having a certain belief, mm -hmm. how do I change that? Because I can certainly, as a psychoanalyst, try to understand with my patient why they believe that because they are not white, they cannot be racist. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I can see how doing so they, from my perspective, they do organize themselves and the world around them on a racist basis. Mm -hmm. Oh, those white people, they don't understand. Which is also something I'm trying to work with because at the time I'm, I ask, but what does it feel to you that you're working with me? Correct. And the answer is usually along the line of, I don't have any choice. There's no black French-speaking clinician in New York, mm -hmm. which I'm not sure it's true. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't really get an answer besides resentment. Yeah. Or the best is, yeah, you're racist, but at least you understand me a little bit. Things like that. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, so what should I do? Should I just wait? Which is basically what I do, hoping that they might perceive the complexity I perceive, but they might not. And why would they? Because I might be wrong. Mm -hmm. There are tons of academics who are saying that I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. So you see those moments of tension? Well, just to give uh, different examples, people who come to my practice to work with me because they believe that I will be able to understand them. Why? Because they are people of color. I am a person of color as, as well. My take is a little bit different. When someone says racism or, ra or any word like this that has exploded in the social context, I usually ask for clarification. One very typical example that has nothing to do with racism is when a patient tells me that they are codependent. That word, codependent, has exploded in the social context. 
Yeah. To be honest, I have no idea what they mean by that. So, and and well, we have a sense. <laughs> we have a sense. What do they mean specifically? Yeah. Exactly. So I ask, and sometimes they are very surprised that I'm asking, and that surprises me because. Well, aren't you a psychoanalyst? <laughs> aren't you supposed to know those things? God damn it! <laughs> exactly. So the same thing with race and gender and sexual orientation and other phrases and terms we use that I think have exploded, as I have mentioned, in the social context and people grab them as explanations for something. So I try to look underneath the term. I think it's important to remain curious and not jump into the wagon of the political discourse. When a patient says racism or I'm a racist or these, to remain open to the possibility that the patient is talking about something completely different. So I would rather try to understand the organizing principle underneath the use of that term, whatever the term is, racism, for example, to understand what is the patient organizing in his mind, that the patient now uses one word, to put together a series of driving forces, fantasies, unconscious wishes underneath that one word. But this, of course, doesn't happen in one session. I agree with you. I would add two things. I find difficult to be in the transference and to feel like the person in front of you sees you as a racist. Mm -hmm. It's me. Yes. Maybe some other people are more detached from that. I usually don't really care about how my patients perceive me. But when they project that onto me, I do feel more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I feel touched personally. Mm-hmm. And it might actually be the intent of the Correct. patients at that moment. Correct. And second point is also that I agree with you that I also practice like you're saying. I try to understand with them the value of their belief, whatever the belief is. And I'm trying to help them think about how it interwaves with their life. But when you have a defense like the academic understanding of racism, mm-hmm. you're not going to go any very no, far. No, you're not going far, no. And to be fair, now I'm talking about this kind of uh, intellectual understanding. It happens with psychoanalysis as well, mm-hmm. especially when you're working with therapists who will give you, oh, yeah, but I know. I know it's me uh, repressing. Oh, I know it's me. But uh, just like, oh, mm-hmm. God's sake. Like, just stop. <laughs> like, I mean, the mm-hmm. intellectual differences, they can be everywhere. So I don't want to give the impression that I'm only thinking that this, uh, this is the only defense one can have. But it becomes, I think, very difficult to question what I feel really is an important part of our humanity. And that it's not about, you know, it's like having bias. It's like having preconception. People who pretend that they don't, to me, can be very dangerous. Of course. People pretend that we shouldn't have bias, shouldn't have preconception, I think are dangerous. Mm -hmm. The question is more, to me, about what we do with them. Yes. You see a person, no matter what specifically look like, you will have a preconception. But how much of your psychical apparatus is flexible enough to have a preconception and be open that your preconception doesn't have to be true? Like, this person looks so wonderful. She, he looks so pretty. Mm -hmm. They look so nice. 
to give a very nice, in quotes, preconception, because this preconception can be also overwhelming to people. Like, how much can you tolerate that actually this person is not nice? Other way around. Mm -hmm. Oh, she, he, they look like crap. They look like mean people. How much can you tolerate that you both have this idea and know that this idea is not correct? Mm -hmm. I think this is where psychonesis is helpful. Yes. And I find that in themes that as psychonesis we find touchy, I feel like it's harder. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever we're talking about sex, money, and aggression, those are the three biggies. <laughs> and they touch something in us. And anxiety increases, and we would rather not talk about that or you know we defend against we ward off we want to disavow our own feelings it reminds me of uh, this idea that in those moments we want or i want probably i want to be loved mm -hmm. i want to be appreciated mm -hmm. and i find that when we have the confidence that it's going to be okay we can or i can tolerate being the support of negative, very negative transference. Mm -hmm. But when you don't have that confidence, when I don't have that confidence, uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why it, it then becomes harder to tolerate being uh, experienced as such a bad object. And you know, it's like when someone tells you you're racist, what are you going to say? Oh no, I have a black friend. Oh man, this is over. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> yes. this is not going to help you. The stain can be there. Well, you cannot respond in kind, meaning the, the patient say... No, say, you? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> you are. <laughs> no, I am. Mirror, mirror. You know, so it then becomes ego-to-ego ego conversation, which is sometimes it leads nowhere. You know, it's an intellectualization of a process. Yes, uh, and I guess going to this idea that one of the tension is that this will go outside of the room and that we will be judged outside of the room and it will become real. Mm -hmm. that when those seems who carry with them such tension, they carry such tension that they move away from the fantasy field. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they become real. And when things become real, I find that the second is, I don't really know how to handle that. Well, because once the symptom is concretized, what can you do? You're done. If, if the symptom becomes concrete, that's it. We're done. Cannot do much. If a patient who has somatic symptom, meaning something in some body part, and the patient believes that the only way to deal with the psychosomatic experience is to cut that part, once that happens, you're done. The symptom, of course, will show up elsewhere. Yeah. But you have already concretized the symptom. So once what we've been talking about is concretized, meaning you are racist, period. There is no nothing else. You are racist and also you become a, some kind of inhuman. Yes, because you're a bad object. In my reasoning, everybody can be racist in some ways, mm -hmm. but you can move away from it. Yeah. You can recognize it and move away. Yeah. But the, the attack is you are and you stay. But isn't that what's happening in our society? Once someone transgresses certain social custom, whatever that is, the person has, uh, will be cancelled. And there is no way back. So what do we mean by cancelled? Meaning, for example, someone uh, made racist comments somewhere and the person now is uh, publicly shamed, person loses their job, and so on and so forth. That's what I name by the symptom has been concretized now. 
And this happened both on the right and the left. Yes. And therefore, once that happens, there's nothing else that needs to be done. You become what people say about you. Correct. So you're the bad object and you remain the bad object. Without any more possibility to change. No. And then you're expelled from the tribe. The people who expel you probably have a sense that they stay pure. Yeah. So there's something about purity codes here. I think that's a good point. Yeah. Well, this is it for today. Yes, thank you for listening to us. As always, we would love to hear your comments, questions, and expansions of what we have talked about. And as we said in the intro, nothing special here. No, <laughs> but wait for the next one. <laughs> See you next, See you next month. Next. Until then. Bye-bye. <laughs>